envisioning a world where the supermarket becomes obsolete. Yeah. As, as we know it. I mean, they've only been around here since 1946. That's not that long. Wow, I didn't even and, know that. And, uh, there's, and, and now, with the ability to distribute, with the ability now with, uh, goodness, floating row covers, hoop houses, um, uh, season extension, you know, with fans. I mean, there are so many cool techniques to mm-hmm. extend seasons, you know, freezers. Um, we, we can now... We can now uh, be way more regionally secure than we've ever been in the past, and so uh, so there's really no reason to have a supermarket. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Feeding Curiosity. I'm your host Eric Wenzel, as always, and Feeding Curiosity is all about. Exploring the peculiarity of human experience and think, question, and synthesize wherever your creativity and curiosity takes you. And in today's episode is one of those ones that's going to make you think. We are joined by Joel Salatin of Polyface Farms. Joel appeared in The Omnivore's Dilemma, and that's the reason I reached out to him. I read him in the book, and it kind of blew me away on his ideas on how to change the agricultural system. At least... um, being more holistic in how livestock is produced and raised and using what nature would do already and optimizing for it. It's really interesting and fascinating. And after talking to Joel here in this conversation, it's even more fascinating. And he pulls back many layers and looking at the food production, at least in the United States, and causes us to kind of examine why we do the things we do already. Why do we take the supermarket for granted, for instance? And we just kind of go all over the place on where his ideas take us. And then toward the end, we kind of wrap up and say, what is a new way of doing this? Is there a new system that we can create that is harnessing the abilities of what his farm does and other farms like it? And can we create a new network to distribute food across the country? And I find this idea and challenge extremely fascinating and interesting. So, Without further ado, everyone, please enjoy this conversation with Joel Salatin of Polyface Farms. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Feeding Curiosity. And today we have Joel Salatin of Polyface Farms. Thanks for joining us, Joel. Thank you for having me. Um, so for the, I think the best place to start for this episode is just kind of what, does, what do you do and then what is Polyface Farms all about? Well, we. Uh, I know that's well, a really I'm a open. I'm <laughs> author, speaker, do a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, but but mainly, I consider myself a, a, a farmer. We our our mission is to heal the land mm-hmm. and um, and heal the food system, heal the heal society as well, and uh, so produce nutrient dense food on ecologically regenerative uh, protocols. In farming, so we're into livestock, and we do beef, pork, chicken, turkey, eggs, ducks, lambs, and uh, and lumber forestry products. We have a sawmill as well. Oh, cool! So, from there, I recently came across your your farm and what you do through the Onover's Dilemma, which is a book written by Michael Pollan, and I thought your take on farming is 
very unique compared to the average idea, you know, the mass industrialized stuff. And one of the things that in the book that you talked about a lot was your idea of grass farmer. And I thought that was really interesting. And for some people that may be really boring, but the, just the idea that you looked at it, where you took the idea of pastures and just kind of took nature and said, okay, this is what nature is going to do. And then kind of optimizing around what nature is going to do already. So if you can articulate the the structure you have. Sure, sure, yes. Well, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a key point. So uh, let's back up just a little bit, big mm-hmm. picture, to realize that prior to Europeans coming to North America, uh, back in the you know, <laughs> 1600s, whatever, 1600, yeah. um, the, the actually, what is today the United States, was actually far more, produced far more food than we do today with agriculture, John Deere tractors, and, and, and chemical fertilizers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we had a couple hundred million uh, bison. We had, um, you know, a hundred million, um, or I'm sorry, two million wolves, wow. each of whom needed uh, 20 pounds of meat a day. So when I say food, I'm not saying humans ate all that mm-hmm. food. It, it was just, uh, you know, it was it was consumed by a lot of things. There were 200 million beavers. Some of these beavers were the size of a Volkswagen automobile. No way. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I never thought I thought and, a beaver and, would be that big. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, you 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 wanted you'd want to stay out of his chompers. I can tell you that. <laughs> and um, and so and then that's just that. And then not that's not elk and and uh, I mean uh, Audubon sat under a tree in 1800. And, Recorded in his diary, he said, man, I couldn't see the sun for three days for the flock of birds that flew over and blotted out the sun for three days. It was, of course, it was a flock of passenger, uh, passenger pigeons, which are, of course, now extinct. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, it, it should give us all pause to realize that 500 years ago, um, this productive land that we're on today produced way more food than it does today. So mm-hmm. my first question is, well, if that's how productive it was and abundant it was, well, what were the, 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 the patterns and templates that enabled the landscape to be so productive mm-hmm. over a long period of time? And, uh, and it wasn't wild. It was very heavily managed by the uh, Native Americans. And, oh. uh, and the Native Americans, of course, they planted seeds. They, they lit fires. They did all sorts of cool. They herded bison. They did all sorts of cool things. And um, the main thing to understand is that all of the deep soils, the, the, the healthy deep soils on the planet, were built not under forests and not under bushes. They were built under grasslands. Mm-hmm. Grasslands were built for and maintained by herbivores with predators and occasional fire coming along. Mm-hmm. And so if you really want to build soil, you go to grass. I'm not opposed to trees. There's a balance here. You don't (laughs) have all one and not the other. But the point is that grass is the way. Corn, you know, annuals don't. It's perennial. It's perennial prairie polycultures, Um, not annuals like soybeans and squash and Mm -hmm. watermelon and other things uh, that you have to plant all the time. So... So this is the way nature fundamentally works and builds soil. So when we say, 
when we say we're trying to heal the land, build soil, or we're grass farmers, it's a it's an understanding that the most primitive, you know, uh, uh, primordial um, template that nature has given us is the herbivore prairie uh, relationship. Mm-hmm. And and the problem is that we have taken our animals. Think about you know modern America. We have taken our animals off of the grasses. Yes, there's still a lot of cows out there. But when you look at herbivores in nature, they're moving, they're mobbed up for predator protection, and they're mowing. Okay, they're moving, mobbing, and mowing. Today, yeah, three M's. Yeah, moving, mobbing, mowing. And, And today, very, very few, almost none of the animals that we raise are moving, mobbing, mowing. They're not moving. They stay on the same field all the time. Uh, they're not mowing. They're in a in a feedlot, you know, eating uh, chicken manure and chicken feathers and corn. Mm-hmm. And um, and they're not mobbed up. They're spread all out around a field uh, that's continuously grazed. And so uh, when you when you um, uh, refuse to use any one of those three, let alone all three, then the herbivore becomes a liability rather than an asset. But if you use all three, then the herbivore becomes a tremendous asset of hydration, soil building, all these kinds of things. So on our farm, to cut to a bottom line, on our farm since 1961, we have gone from 1% organic matter to over 8% organic matter. That organic matter is the is the key to, you know, feeding the soil food web. It's okay. the key to, um, to hydration, to holding water. Mm-hmm. Every 1% increase in organic matter translates to 20,000 additional gallons of water holding capacity. Whoa. We've gone seven of those percentage points. So seven clicks times 20,000 is 140,000 gallons, mm-hmm. 140,000 gallons of water per acre that we can now hold that we couldn't in 1961. So we start talking about big news events of droughts and floods mm-hmm. and all sorts of things. It's, it's incumbent on us to appreciate yeah. how much in the U.S. we have dropped our whole, uh, the, the porosity and the retentive capacity of our soils with chemical fertilizers, with tillage, with with violating every single critical template of, of natural pattern mm-hmm. we violate, and then we wonder why we have problems. Yeah, it, that's, I didn't even think about that part of it, is that as you add more natural capacity to the land, and I'm assuming that's coming down with this, you can just boil it down to soil quality if you want to be ultra-simplistic about it, but it's allowing you to be more efficient in general in general just by adding that much more capacity to it because then you just don't need to use as much because for every whatever gallon you use it goes that much further yeah well and there are all sorts of microbes i mean we now mm-hmm. we now know that there are more uh more microbes in a double handful of soil than there are people on the face of the earth yeah and in- interestingly we, we've only named 10% of them, 90% are still unnamed. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, I was thinking the other day, we have these uh, star registries where, mm-hmm. you know, you can, 
you can uh, uh, buy a, you know, you can name a star after the name of yeah. your lover or whatever, you know. What we need is a, is a soil microbe registry. You know, there's, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's, there's billions of those. There's, yeah. there's still, um, whatever, you know, uh, five and a half billion of those that aren't named yet. We ought to start a, a, a humus, you know, humus directory. Um, but, but yes, all of those microbes who d- d- depend on the starches, the carbohydrates, yeah. and, and the sugar flow through the soil food web, uh, many of them actually go dormant when the organic matter begins dropping. Oh, wow. Like for, yeah, for, for example, azotobacter bacteria. Azotobacter is a, is a bacteria that, uh, that actually grabs nitrogen out of the atmosphere and brings it into the soil. Well, when the soil drops below 4, 4% organic matter, azotobacter just goes into hibernation, goes dormant. Hmm. So, so there are all sorts of, of neat, you know, neat uh, uh, synergistic elements and, and microbes in the soil that that become alive and symbiotic when organic matter increases, including mm-hmm. earthworms and things like that. Right. It's almost analogous to you know some of the newer science with the gut microbiome, right? Where when you start yes. eating higher quality food and things like that, your your body starts to have a more healthy biome. It's really similar to that, which is, you know, in some ways kind of, it's interesting that these things are sim- have a interplay both and large scale and small scale. Yeah, well, I mean, we now know that, uh, yes, uh, thanks for mentioning the microbiome. I mean, that's that's like, you know, a brand new mm-hmm. frontier here in, in research. We're, we're learning more and more about it. I mean, right now there are 17,000 known uh, chemical compounds in foods. Mm-hmm. We only know... We only know what 150 of them actually do oh in my the human God. body. I mean, it's 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 ridiculous how much we don't know. Mm-hmm. But the fact that we know any of this now, you know, compared to, to 200 years ago mm-hmm. when we thought of when we thought the flu was the the, the flu demon. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. You know, we as the Virginia Slims commercial says, we've come a long way, baby. Oh but, yeah. You know, but but we do have a lot farther to go. But at least we've come far enough to know that there's a lot we don't know and to, to come with a new awe and respect Mm -hmm. for the complexity of this, of this, uh, microscopic soup in which we live. (laughs) Yeah. And, and and that's, that's an important thing to realize. Yeah, for sure. And it, it makes me think about like one of the things that really struck my attention when reading the book and just kind of, thinking about this in a completely different way was like the the idea of you are what you eat and how you can look at standard food that's born via or fed corn like you said earlier and then you can take it under a microscope and look at the the molecules that it makes it up like the chicken or the beef and it looks just like that corn and i was like oh my god like it just it just slapped me across the face like it's a joke we all tell each other like oh yeah you eat pizza so you're you know you must be a pizza kind of thing but it, it really, it really is like that. Like when you're eating yeah, well, crap. Well, it is, it is. And, and it even, if I, if I could uh, just move just a smidgen further mm-hmm. on it. Please do. Know, we have now uh, just a huge uh, interest uh, in, in uh, fake meat now, you know, mm-hmm. beyond meat and, and uh, whatever, be, um, beyond burgers, all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, all the soy-based uh, burgers and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, make, making fake, fake meat. And, and uh, I mean, that's the new venture capital 
um, a garbage can for money, you know. And uh, and what's interesting is that those things, of course, all use primarily soybeans mm-hmm. as a as a food source to feed the you know to feed the, the slime and the vat that's that's growing in yeah. the you know in the in the petri in the in the tractor trailer sized petri dish. Um, think of think of how simplistic that is compared to for example a cow out on on um healthy prairie mm-hmm. uh, perennial prairie in which there are you know 50 species of plants per acre that she's dining on mm-hmm. and all of the complexities that that brings into the tissue, there is no way under the sun that that complexity, that diversity can be uh, uh, duplicated in a, in a simple mechanistic laboratory. And, and so, you know, here we are, we're living in a time of inclusion and diversity and all this stuff. And yet, and yet as a culture, we are embracing this incredibly simplified, uh, segregated, non-diversified kind of, um, you know, kind of food system to feed an incredibly complex microbiome. I mean, it's a, it's it's like a non-sequitur, you know. It's, yeah. it's um, uh, well, in, in debate, we call this um, intellectual schizophrenia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it just, as soon as you t- started articulating that, it's it really kind of reminds me of like this, like a monoculture, if we're go- sticking with this bacteria theme we kind of go- got going, and it's like saying, or even just any some of the fad diets where you just start ac- excluding certain groups from your diet and sure. saying that's, right. that's healthy, quote unquote. Um, right. and, and unfortunately, when you, it's because it's the simplistic or narrow view, it's like, yeah, just demonize one thing, then you'll be healthier. Yeah. You know, I just returned from, uh, from a couple of weeks of speaking in Australia mm-hmm. and, um, you know, we're, we're just discovering a lot more, um, archeological and anthropological stuff. And, um, one of the things that, that I just learned, I've been to Australia numerous times, mm-hmm. but one of the things that they've just learned, um, that I brought back on this trip is that they have now found, I'll just mention two things, they found that as the Aborigines went up and down the coast, they had, they had uh, a special dedicated trash piles so that as a new, as, as a new group walked through, if, if the trash pile, uh, if the latest thing on it, for example, was, um, was, was shrimp shells, mm-hmm. then those folks didn't go eat shrimp. They ate mussels. Oh wow! And if it was if it was mussel shells, they went and they ate, you know, something besides uh, mussels. And so the, the the designated trash piles were were studied before foraging, in order to to not over harvest mm-hmm. and maintain diversity. And the average Aborigine ate more than two thousand types of foods. Wow. I challenge anybody you or anybody listening to me <laughs> right now to sit down and try to even write down 50 foods yeah. that you've eaten in the last year. 
And and so again, we we have moved. Goodness, read um, Dolly Madison's cookbook mm-hmm. or uh, Martha Washington's cookbook. You can get it at Mount Vernon, and and you read the cookbook, and literally ninety percent of the ingredients in there are foods. We don't even have a clue what they are. You know, black currants and gooseberries. <laughs> I mean, you go to the supermarket, you, you think there's varieties, but there's nothing there. There's nothing. There's no variety compared to what they had back, you know, before storage and refrigeration, where mm-hmm. you had to you had to think about a, you know, a, a season long production line of real time things coming in. Uh, it was a it was a very very diversified, um, you know, diet in, in, back in the colonial times. Yeah, that's, I didn't even think about that part of it, but it is, it is crazy to think of how little variation there is. You know, it's like probably ninety percent of most people's food comes from some sort of corn product. Yeah, at least in general for the for most of the developed world, and that we're using one percent of that, and then that gets knocked or pushed out of the way. And then outside of that is we're not really paying attention to, you know, we just see these things as mass producers. So we're like, well, we just need more of that. And then yeah. we. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and that's why animals, animals that are in factory farms mm-hmm. have such a, a bland taste. I mean, we're in the time of everything has to be uh, sauced and breaded. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah, in order to have taste because simplicity simplicity equals pale taste. And if you go to a garden show, the winner is not the one with the pale flower. It's the one with the real, you know, uh, uh, deep, rich colored flowers. (laughs) And the same thing is true, uh, with, with, with tastes, the more simplistic the ingredients, the more bland the taste. And so that's why, I mean, for example, when people, when people get our chicken, for -hmm. example, they say, well, I don't even need to put salt and pepper or sauce on it. I just, I just eat it like it is. You know, it's <laughs> wonderful. It has taste. In fact, we had, we had one, uh, one. We went into a, a diner with our eggs one time, mm-hmm. and um, and the cook, uh, the cook said that is that that the that people don't want an egg that has any taste. They they want a, an egg that doesn't have any taste. I said, well, what are you talking about? <laughs> and and so. Uh, so when you go to a pastured situation, then they're eating grass and weeds and bugs and insects, all sorts of different things, in addition to getting good exercise. Mm-hmm. All of that makes a col- makes better color, color in the fat, color in the, in the meat, in the muscle tissue. You know, pork isn't supposed to be white. It's supposed to be rose-colored. Okay. Uh, white indicates anemia and slovenly bland uh, cardboard you know, uh, <laughs> structure. And, and, and so, uh, so there is, there is a huge nutritional, nutritional profile difference, um, in, in a pastured animal as opposed to a, uh, a factory confinement animal. Yeah. And I, I, I truly agree with that as I, I've used a couple organic services before and things like that. And it's not something you, you notice right away. It's something that you, cause you're just accustomed to a certain level of quality, right? And then once you get exposed to it, you're like, "Oh, this is what it's all about." And I, <laughs> you know, and it's like it's like yeah. removes the blinders from your eyes. And and one of the things I do want to try is eventually is you know actual game meat or something that I've hunted or something before because it is, you know, you can't get any more you know wild than that, right? And yeah. um, 
just out of that like quality over quantity aspect basically. Oh yeah, well the richness, I mean the richness in taste of for example, you know, a, a hunted like venison or mm-hmm. even squirrel or elk uh is is the, the richness is just incredible and part of that richness is they've been picking a leaf off of this tree, that tree, mm-hmm. eating a blade of grass here, a weed there, a blossom over there. You know, it's not just uh, uh, corn and beans on a conveyor belt going into a <laughs> into a, a feed bunk. Yep. Um, one of the things I would love to ask you about is is this idea that I've recently started like throwing around in my head because I didn't think about this before. But it's the idea that mass organic, mass producing organic food is a contradiction. And the more I think about it, the more I'm like, yeah, that is kind of a contradiction because it's almost like we need to have like separate pockets around the country because if we're shipping food across, you know, across the country or from other places in the world, because we, if we really pay attention to seasonality, there's certain things you're not going to be able to get year round in certain areas. So I would love for you to expand on that idea or if if there's any credence (laughs) on that, because it it just seems... (laughs) Yeah, well, um, uh, I, if, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll, I'll tease out a little bit from the from the kind of the quest or the idea. Um, first of all, I'm not certified organic. I don't play government mm-hmm. games, and and cert and government certification mm-hmm. now has pretty much been taken over by the industry, Got it. and uh, and it's becoming more meaningless by the minute. Wow, you know, uh, we're we're now certifying organic. Uh, you know. Uh, plants grown without any soil at all, uh, okay. which is in direct contradiction to everything that, you know, organics stood for mm-hmm. uh, 50 years ago. So, so, um, that's why you're not going to hear me use the term organic. Very that's much, interesting. But I, I, I never would have known but that. I, yeah, I, I do use, uh, and, and goodness, you know, 98% of the organic eggs in the country are coming from, um, are coming from factory chickens. They just feed them organic feed, but they never mm-hmm. see daylight. They never see grass. They never see anything. Um, so it's just a factory chicken fed, you know, organic feed. And that's mm-hmm. even suspect because a lot of it comes out of, you know, Romania and Uzbekistan through Istanbul and uh, it comes in regular and they stamp it organic and it comes to the U S organic grain. Boom. You know? Yeah. And, and so there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of suspect going on out there. So, yeah. Um, so, so I think I think the crux of your uh, of the idea is that to to drill back down to well, when organic was originally designed or developed, when Rodale uh, coined the term, mm-hmm. it was more than just a kind of a system of do's and don'ts. It, it, was, it was an ideology. Yeah. Uh, and part of the ideology is that um, that food security requires regional sufficiency a, a region that do, that can't or won't feed itself is extremely vulnerable to everything from weather to social political unrest to wars to you know <laughs> all sorts of things and so uh so this notion that oh well you know we can just build strip malls here and sell peruvian potatoes um does not build security and resilience into a food system and so uh if we're going to actually have a resilient food system, we need a bioregional um, a bioregional theme to food acquisition. Mm-hmm. Now, beyond that, if we head down that path very far, 
pretty soon we're going to end up on seasonality and uh, and eating closer to home. And so, you know, for example, for, for me, I pretty much don't eat seafood unless I'm 50 miles from the ocean. So I love to eat seafood when I'm on the, you know, the seacoast. But when I'm in Denver, I don't get shrimp scampi, okay? Uh, and, and so that's just a little, I'm not saying that's gospel or anything. I'm just being transparent so people understand that mm-hmm. they're, I, I'm actually thinking about a big picture, uh, thinking macro, macro world, not just, um, your neighborhood, not just, <laughs> not just the universe revolves around, around what I want for the day. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one element. And, and, and then you head down that path and guess what? You start thinking about seasonality and you start thinking, well, you know, why should Maine have fresh strawberries in February? Mm-hmm. We're supposed to eat, be eating frozen or dehydrated strawberries that we had last spring. And then guess what? When the new strawberries are available this spring, we all celebrate because it's the first strawberry of the spring. What's wrong with having a, you know, a food system that accentuates our dependency on our ecological umbilical rather than a food system that completely uh, divorces our psyche mm-hmm. from our dependence on our ecological umbilical? Yeah, it, it- it makes a lot of sense, and as you're talking about it, it kind of makes me just as you. If we were to do a system like this and get more in tune with our local environments, it seems like it would have rever- reverberations into the other environmental aspects. You know, with when it comes to power and energy and all that kind of stuff. Because if we're in in tune with where food comes from, then we can better visualize where our what else we're doing to the environment in that way. And that's just a, a total tangent, just me thinking about it. <laughs> well, no, it's, no it, it, it's excellent because, because at the end of the day, uh, our, our, our ability in modern, whatever, modern techno-sophisticated society, mm-hmm. our ability to, what I can say, disconnect or unplug from our reliance on everything in our, in our nest and our womb it mm-hmm. is unprecedented, totally unprecedented. I mean, you, you, you get power, you flick on a switch. You get mm-hmm. water, you turn a valve on. You, you, you know, you get food, you go to the freezer, you go to the microwave. I mean, this, this, this notion that food comes in a bag, power comes from a switch, and water comes from a faucet, those, those <laughs> are extreme, those are extreme, um, anomaly yeah. luxuries in, in the course of human history. Absolutely. And so, um, one of my favorite places to visit is the uh, the Native American uh, settlement down at Jamestown here mm-hmm. in Virginia, and uh, you know you have the Jamestown, which is the first European settlement in yep. Virginia, and then you have adjoining uh, it, you have the the Palatine, it's called the Palatine Village, uh, Chief Palatine, all that stuff, and uh, you go in, you go in these neat little you know crude uh, structures, and. The covering is animal hides. Mm-hmm. The framework is lattice, you know, just a uh, little sapling bent, sapling lattice work. And then hanging up in the top is, is, uh, meat and, and, uh, parched corn and gourds and, you know, squash. And so you lie down with your beloved at night. You're looking up into the smoky ceiling of your house. And not only 
do you have this overwhelming sense of appreciation for for nature's caregiving and abundance, but you also have the other side of that, which is this incredible visceral understanding of dependence on an ecological mm-hmm. an ecological womb, and and I think that that's a, a a great sense of balance and perspective for us today. Yeah. So so you know I, I I'm a big believer in in reestablishing your domestic larder. You know, um, food. What the average city now has only three days of food in it. The average household goes to the goes to the grocery store um, four or five days a week. We we should be reinstituting the the historic larder in our homes. Mm-hmm. So when we dot lie down with the beloved, <laughs> with our beloved, uh, a few feet away in the in the kitchen pantry and larder, are foodstuffs that we have that we have garnered from the area we know the farmer we know it, we know the provenance of it we mm-hmm. we know uh how it was handled uh because we handled it mm-hmm. and maybe you know we used our kitchen to you know uh package preserve and 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 um, uh prepare uh this and so we lie down and we know that if the power goes off or you know a blizzard comes or the you know the the uh, the Chinese take over DC or whatever it is <laughs> that that we have you know we have four or five months that we can just live on accumulated larder. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of um, of soul uh, whatever soul um, um, satiation in that you yeah. know where. Security um, and, and you know we live in an incredibly uh, insecure time. And uh, I mean, I don't know how many articles I've seen in the last month about you know suicide rates going up mm-hmm. and, and people are fearful, they're on edge and stuff. And and I just think a place to start, a place to start is just to um, to reconnect and rediscover this this visceral. Um, food security, you know, yeah. for ourselves. And and I, I agree with you. I think it extends then you start down that path and start developing that part of your consciousness. And mm-hmm. guess what? Then you start thinking about, well, do I need to leave the lights on so much? Mm-hmm. Uh, should I get some LED bulbs? Should <laughs> I not, do I, do I not have to go to town as much? You know, can we get rid of one car? Can we, can we uh, ride share? You know, you, you mm-hmm. start thinking about other things. Yeah, it's like a conscientiousness that extends beyond just one aspect of it. Because once you start having a consciousness about one aspect, it's like, oh, maybe I don't need as much in other areas too. Or or how do I... Because you understand your own personal impact. Because right now, when you go to a store, it's like you're saying with the food, water, and energy, you it's just a gray box. Like It's like, well, if I know it's going to be there, then I don't, you know, right. I just don't need to think about it. But then it, once you start transplanting that effort part of it, to more front of brain, you can then start understanding just, even if you don't do it all the time, it's still better than not knowing at all, right? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, I, I like this thread that you're, you're pursuing because uh, it, it, it a lot of it boils down to just our curiosity. I mean, the, <laughs> fact, the fact that the average American right now is far more curious and interested about the latest dysfunction in the Kardashian household (laughs) than 
then, then, then what's going to become flesh of their flesh and bone of their bones at six o'clock mm-hmm. is an incredible indictment on our own uh, our own personal stewardship of our intellect. Mm-hmm. That, that, that we we humans, you know, uh, we should be the ones that are that are calibrating that trajectory for um, you know for for our our landscape. Yes. And our nutrition, our 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 grandkids, you know, yeah, all absolutely. This. And 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 here we are, um, head over heels over. I mean, essentially, if if there's beer in the fridge, NFL is on TV, and Kardashians are on the front page of People magazine, you know, life is good. I mean, that's <laughs> that's that's, that, that's kind of the end of most people's curiosity. Yeah, and that's an incredible. That's an incredibly flat, um, vapid, you know, a vapid curiosity of the average person. Absolutely. And I, I mean, for me, it's it's always been, I, I try to look at these problems in a sense that there's something going on here, but a lot of it is like what you said is reconnecting back to it because I really believe that it's not about some company or some something coming in and becoming the, the new Google or Facebook of it. I, I don't think that's going to work in the long term because like you said, this this ecosystem is incredibly complex and has seasonality attached to it. So you need to be able to start grassroots to be able to break through, you know, like you said, the organic industry is being driven by bureaucracy. So at that end of the day, it doesn't it's not gonna be driven by some government something or another. It's gonna be driven by people making the active choice within, you know, like you said, fifty mile radius, I think is a good number. Even though I don't know anything about it, it's just I just feel like that sounds like a good number to think about where your food comes from. Yeah, well, uh, you're exactly right. All innovation, all new ideas and, and innovation, they all come from the grassroots. They start from the bottom up. Why? Mm-hmm. Because they have to start embryonically. Mm-hmm. No no true innovation comes spontaneously fully developed. Right. It starts from an embryo. You, know, you have to you have to birth a baby before you have a, you know, before you have a person. And and so uh so this idea that you know, well, we need a government agency. We need it. We need a government grant. We need a gov- We need something from the top down. No, top down always, always. Even if it's done sincerely with good faith and everything else, it's always going to end up actually um, incentivizing and subsidizing the status quo. Mm-hmm. That's what. That's what the system. That's what the system pays for. Right. And it, so, it shuttles money so that the people in power already stay in power. Right, right, and, and so the the the, ra- the lunatic fringe. It's called, I think, in business. Um, the lunatic fringe is where the real, you know, the, the real changes come. Um, you know, can can we can we make a, you know, can we make an electric car instead of a, mm-hmm. you know, a, a gas car? Uh, yeah. You know, people that dare to ask those questions are always the heretics, the lunatic fringe in mm-hmm. society. But they're all, they're also, you know, tend to be lone wolves. You know, they're out there, because uh, they're not saying what everybody else is saying. And that, that's what we, that's what we desperately need to preserve. Mm-hmm. In, in, in times of, of severe, uh, societal concern, that is the very time when we most need to preserve the lunatic fringe. Mm-hmm. Because that's where the answers are going to come from. Yeah, and and for me, like one of the my favorite quotes that I recently heard from a, a a biography was, "Innovation isn't always coming up with something brand new. It's 
rediscovering what was once lost. And that's what I really mm, feel mm-hmm. feel like this kind of connection is. It's looking back, like, what did humans do, you know, 100, 200, longer, you know, probably since before we were even agriculturalists. And, and figuring out how do we can take the things that we once did and evolve them or wrap them into a modern structured society and kind of have this homogenized network. Cause even, I don't know if factory could ever go away completely, but you would need to, it, I think there's a room for both and to kind of, you know, have a pie chart and you have, you know, certain percentages of different things in different areas, depending on the density or something like that is, it seems like a reasonable way, but unfortunately being reasonable is not always the best way to get a following. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. Well, when you start drilling down into it that way, you, 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 you then there, there are additional nuances right. that you can tease out. For example, right here where we live, we're never going to grow coffee. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So, so coffee is going to be imported, but you know what? Coffee uh, you don't have to have it, mm-hmm. believe it or not, and <laughs> and 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 it it's it's dry. It, it it's there's it's very different shipping coffee a thousand miles than it is shipping cabbage a thousand miles. Cabbage is eighty five percent water, highly perishable. Coffee is dry, no water, and uh, very very stable. You know when it's when it's dried. So um, historically. Food items that were shipped were always dry. Mm-hmm. They were never wet. You know, when Daniel Boone went out to Kentucky, he didn't have watermelons and, and zucchinis <laughs> hanging from the saddlebags. He had a pouch of, of uh, jerky and pemlican, mm-hmm. you know, which was extremely uh, nutrient-dense, um, you know, dried meat and, and venison. And, you know, he, he could take, he could take uh, 10 pounds of that and live for a month on that yeah uh stable it was it was it was shelf stable and it was extremely nutrient dense so um i mean spices are a perfect example spices you know they're yeah uh, we're not we're not yeah we're not going to grow um you know all the spices around here they've been shipped around the world forever but they're they're extremely um potent you know Mm -hmm. And, and so so historically Things have, have always been shipped, and, and there's always been trade and commerce going on long distances. But generally, it's been um, it's been non-perishable dried goods that go the longest distance. And as you get more watery and more perishable, it gets you know tighter. It gets closer and closer and closer to home, basically, uh, right? Oh yeah, yeah. And, and so so right now, for example, in the urban sector. If every house, uh, you know, from whatever north of uh, Alabama, mm-hmm. uh, if every if every building north of Alabama had a southern um, a solarium on the south side of it, you know, we could absolutely grow all of the leafy greens, broccoli, uh, you know, cauliflower, all of the, the the cold season stuff. We can grow all of that embedded, you know, integrated in our communities, in our cities, in our homes, we could grow all of that and never have to ship any of that anywhere, mm-hmm. which would then free up places like California and Florida and things like that. It would free them up to be able to better feed themselves. And, and so, um, so a, a lot of this, this, this is not technologically advanced. It's just, mm-hmm. it's just a different, it's just a different way of thinking 
about how we acquire food and how we actually interact with food. Yeah, and I think that's really the biggest problem right now is that the there's this major disconnect between the farmer and the consumer is neither end of the spectrum knows who who they're actually serving because it just gets put into this massive box for the most part where it's um, the supermarket or whatever producing agency and then it just we don't have any clue where that came from or how it got to our plate and I think right. I think one of the biggest through lines is like at least a baby step is kind of connecting the dots between the farmer and the consumer and then people can kind of realize because for me one of the biggest things that I kind of struck me was that farmers at least the big farmers that we know of today they create so much food for such a vast amount of people that if you were to put their scales like they should be put up on a pedestal because they're like superheroes (laughs) yeah well uh, fortunately, you know, we're now getting more and more technology that does enable us to close the loop. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, I make no apologies for essentially being, uh, or, or, or whatever, envisioning a world where the supermarket becomes obsolete yeah. as, as we know it. I mean, they've only been around here since 1946. That's not that long. Wow. I didn't even and, think about that. And, uh, there's, and, and now... With the ability to distribute, with the ability now, with uh, goodness, floating row covers, hoop houses, um, uh, season extension, you know, with fans. I mean, there are so many cool techniques to mm-hmm. extend seasons. You know, freezers. Um, we we can now we can now uh, be way more regionally secure than we've ever been in the past, and so. Uh, so there's really no reason to have a supermarket. We just um, buy from the farmers or the you know the local brands that we know, mm-hmm. and um, keep our larder up, and buy in bulk, and um, you know you're in you're in business. The, the uh, so you invest in a chest freezer instead of a flat screen TV, <laughs> and. And, um, you know, you save $2,000 a year, eat like a king, and uh, don't sit in the traffic waiting for a left-hand turn at the Walmart all the time. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. These are, um, I mean, we just, we just had a guy, an amazing guy. He, he, um, he's a 30-year-old um, oh, financial algorithm geek in, in a bowels of a day trading company in mm-hmm. on Manhattan. But he, but he, he spent his first ten years of his life in Poland. Wow! And then he migrated with his family to the to the U.S. And um, anyway, so now he's you know married and, and uh, pushing thirty, and he says, "Man, I want to, I want, I want the food that was like I had in Poland." So he mm-hmm. started on a search, you know, started out in the Pennsylvania, New Jersey, you know, New York, and started sampling stuff, and finally found us. And 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 when he found us, he realized, "Oh, now I found I don't have to look any more farther." And in less than a year now, he, he's coming down. He came down uh, a month ago, mm-hmm. and he's got so many family and friends around him there uh, in, in New York that he came down and, and got like over $15,000 worth of bulk. I mean, primal wow. meat, like whole, whole hog carcasses. He That's took crazy. his garage and turned it into a, turned into a little butchery. And and looked at YouTube to figure mm-hmm. out how to cut up an animal and make Polish sausage. No. 
and, and, and now it's this massive party. He arrives, he arrives up there with all this stuff. Everybody meets him. They put on the Polish polkas, you know, and yeah. they're drinking out Polish sausage and meat, you know, and everybody takes their pieces. It's amazing. That's so cool. But it, 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 it is cool. It is cool. And, um, and, and he's just, he, his influence is outsized because he has attracted, he, he, he hasn't browbeat people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think most people know that what they get in the supermarket isn't very good. Yeah. But, but, but they don't know where to go. And so when they run into somebody like this, who has um, essentially taken the taken the shackles of the the current uh, orthodoxy off his wrists and stepped out into new territory? Wow, it's just it's magnetically attractive. Mm-hmm. And they say, you know, hey, we're you know, um, can I come and be baptized too? You know? <laughs> and and it, it's really it's really amazing to yeah. watch I, how people are drawn to this. I think it's something to do with the authenticity of it too, because when you when you become a zealot, right? Because that's what a lot of people do when they get latched onto a certain idea. When it, especially when it comes to food, it's kind of like a new religion kind of thing, um, right? You, but when you come up, come out with it with a sense of authenticity, and you're you're trying to reincorporate values of food that are basically ancient. That's how we, at least the way I look at it is where it's all about yeah. the. Uh, respect for the environment and then respect for what food does. And what food does is bring people together and you're allowed to tell stories. And I, and I think when you, when you do that and you don't demonize certain aspects of it and you're just like, I just want to have the highest quality interaction, right? Basically with people Uh and the food, then you just, it becomes a, yeah, like magnetic. It just has its own force field around it. And then people realize like, Oh my God, like all this is fun. Like all of this is, there's something just majorly positive about it because you feel good about eating something that's born from the environment in a better way than on average. You feel better about that, and then you feel better about because the interactions you have with the people that you share that food with. It's, it becomes like this little tribal unit, basically. Right. Well, this is one of the reasons why um, school gardens are so wonderful mm-hmm. today, and and kids... I mean, I've been involved with tons of school gardens. I mean, I you know I travel and speak, and yeah. I'll, you know they'll they'll hey, can you come out to your school garden? Sure, you know I come out, and you know kids just if you get kids before they're eleven, I think mm-hmm. there's a magic age like pre eleven, like after eleven they start getting oh you know it's kind of ishy or it's dirty or whatever. Yeah, right. But but pre pre eleven. Kids are just all into worms and bugs and dirt. And, you know, <laughs> let me just you know immerse in the soil. Oh, yeah. One of the best ones that I ever saw was out in California, and these two uh, two gals were running a a, a a school garden. It was hooked up to the middle schools there in the county, and they incorporated it into the uh, science curriculum. So every mm-hmm. week the kids came out. These two ladies were running the farm, and they had a great big um, manure. Uh, not manure, uh, earthworm, earthworm bed. It was about eight feet long, mm-hmm. uh, three feet wide, three feet high. It was a big thing and a big box, big uh, worm bed. Of course, they, you know, they introduced the kids to the worms. And the mm-hmm. kids, you know, they, oh, this is awesome. You know, all those worms in there. So <laughs> one of their assignments was, one of their assignments was, well, you know, so next week bring some food. So the next week the kids brought, they brought, you know, Snickers and Twizzlers and Cheerios and, 
you know, Velveeta oh, wow. and, and uh, um, you know, gummy bears. And they put all that in, in one end. And then the two lady farmers, they brought, you know, an orange, pound of ground beef, uh, some uh, sourdough bread, okay? And they, and they put that in their end. Next week, the kids came back. They charged up the hill. They opened up the lid. They pull out the you know the Twizzlers and the the uh, Wonder Bread and the and the um, gummy bears mm-hmm. and all the other Velveeta cheese stuff, and they go over the other end and everything's gone. Wow, that's so cool. <laughs> and 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 they said, you know, what happened? Well, so the so the 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 learning the lesson of the day. Get this, you're gonna love this. The lesson of the day was here. These two ladies looked at the kids. The kids are just in awe. You know. Ours is here. Yours is gone. What's the deal? Yep. And the teachers looked at it. The, the farmers looked at them and said, well, why would you want to eat something worms won't even eat? Yeah. I love that. It's exactly where I was going. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. so good. It was a great, great uh, learning moment. Yeah. I mean, it, it puts it in such a stark contrast for, for just the, for one, it's like, well, if you're going to eat something like that too, but then also it's like understanding it's like, if nature won't even like this thing is so processed that nature doesn't even know what to do with it. Right. It's kind of right. like what you can say. And it's, it kind of just, just slaps you upside the head and it's like, okay, maybe I shouldn't be putting that in my body. It doesn't, right. it doesn't demonize it. Right. Like people do is like, you shouldn't eat sugar. Like that's why you're fat or whatever the simple <laughs> part of it is. And when you put it like that, it's like, okay, you you just kind of have it takes makes you take a step back and then question your normal value uh, or the assumed value because you know when you say food you think exactly all that stuff you just named in in general and I yeah that's all that's such a real life example of like just it makes me like want to do an experiment now where you just have like a time lapse camera and then just have a worm bed and then just watch it <laughs> you could probably find one on YouTube yeah. already but for myself. Um, you know, I, I think I think people don't realize what what um, you know what processing does to food. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, I, re- I remember when I was in high school. This is you know, whew, uh, almost fifty years ago. <laughs> wow, doesn't seem like is that possible? But anyway, when I was there, uh, uh, one of the one of the kids did a science experiment mm-hmm. where. I don't remember. I don't remember what the brand of cereal was. I don't remember whether it was Corn Flakes or Wheaties mm-hmm. or shredded wheat or whatever it was. But anyway, one of the one of the major brands of, of, of breakfast cereal. They took that and they they did a they did a, a mouse experiment. They fed that to to mice, and then they took they took the raw ingredients and they went and procured them. And they fed those to the mice, mm-hmm. and the ones that got the raw ingredients thrived, and the ones on the breakfast food diet that was in the box, mm-hmm. they were sickly. Wow! And and it was it was really a really a powerful mm-hmm. um, a powerful uh, illustration yeah. of this this. You know this processed food stuff. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a there's a lot of science and a lot of um, whatever hanky panky there to make you want to eat more, yes. to make you feel hungry after you ate it, so you're wanting to eat more. I mean, the I mean the the book, the Dorito effect. You know, talks yep. about this, and uh, 
it's a you know it's a there the agenda of the of the food conglomerates in our country their agenda is not health their agenda is sales yes i mean they're a business at the end of the day right they just want to move product absolutely and um I mean, it, it makes me think of a question is like, how did you become in this web of, of this like quality driven question when it comes to food? Because like that high school example seems like a really good like point for you. But obviously your farm has been around longer than than that. Well, um, my my uh, grandfather mm-hmm. was a charter subscriber to Rodale's Organic Gardening and Farming Magazine. Oh, so, so uh, our family was weird from day one. I mean, I grew up on, you know, uh, Adele Davis um, back in the '60s. You know, Eat Right to Keep Fit, and mm-hmm. uh, oh, what are all her? She had two or three books. Never, never could quit smoking though. That's the funny thing. She never could quit smoking. <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, let, let's cook it right. That was one of her be- better ones. Um, let's get well was another one. Um, I mean, she, she just was iconic in the, you know, she, she came on after uh, Rachel Carson mm-hmm. wrote silent spring. So, you know, our, our family embraced this, um, this non-chemical ecological approach toward, inv- toward, um, you know, environmental stewardship yes. early on. And, um, and I just, I just inherited it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just super interesting for me because it feels like this whole, understanding the ecology more is early 2000s ish kind of <laughs> but it, right you're laughing because like that's what it feels like for me because there's not a lot of people talking about it and for someone like well, me you <laughs> probably don't have that much memory before 2000 uh yeah i'm 26 years old so i'm not super <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna say you sound about 16 so I yeah figured, my voice is I, not I figured it couldn't be too far above 2000 <laughs> Life, you know, everybody's life starts where their memory starts, you know, mm-hmm. and that, that's the way life is. But no, a lot of people don't realize that in at, at post World War II, there was a there was a struggle for the heart and soul of agriculture in America, and you know, you had all these stockpiles of, of uh, nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus mm-hmm. that had been stockpiled to make uh, explosives for World War II, and um, and, you know, it was cheap, it was plentiful, and frankly, farmers had, A, they'd lost a lot of sons in the war, so mm-hmm. there were a lot of, a lot of uh, farm families that were short of labor after World War II because the sons didn't come home. And number two, uh, they were actually, they were tired of shoveling, shoveling poop, shoveling straw, shoveling, you know, uh... all this stuff. And so, you know, they were presented a little bag that was cheap, and put this on, and you know, I tell people, be gentle on old grandpa. You know, he, 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 <laughs> you in the same position. Uh, you know, at 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 forty, fifty years old, uh, losing a son in the war, and shoveling and shoveling and shoveling, you might have just reached for that bag too. And, and, and then it took, you know, so then it took a while, uh, actually a couple of decades, for for the biological side to develop, you know, chippers and, and black plastic pipe and uh, little front end loaders, you know, with, uh, with, with hydraulics, the chainsaw, mm-hmm. so that we could actually have a credible uh, carbon economy 
at scale. And this yeah. is back to your original, kind of one of your original questions there about scaling this. So this is not a matter of scale. We can scale easily. In fact, you know, the biological approach can, can run circles in production around the chemical approach. Wow. Um, but, we, but we literally have not had the, the infrastructure, the tools, mm-hmm. to do it at, at significant scale until the last, you know, 60 or 70 years. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's been a while until we got these tools. But now we have the tools, and now we're, you know, from foliar, you know, from foliar applications to, um, you know, to composting. I mean, composting didn't really uh, get developed until 1943 by uh, Sir Albert Howard in India. Wow. And, um, and so, you know, even composting is a relatively new, and we've always had decomposition, obviously, mm-hmm. but the actual manipulated, enhanced, managed, scientific aerobic composting model mm-hmm. did not really come to the world stage until 1943 when Sir Albert Howard wrote so um, <laughs> an agricultural testament. It's, it's so crazy to me that this, some of these ideas that just, you know, enhancing what nature already does best are, you know, re, quote unquote, recently discovered, you know, in two generations, 1940s, yes. 1960s. Yes. It's just, it's so mind blowing. And then that no one, they're simple too. They're not really like, you don't have to do a lot of gymnastics to figure them out. It's just that people haven't latched onto them enough yet. You know, they haven't got, breaking enough ground. Right to be able to just be like, oh yeah, this is how you do it. Or people just don't know enough to be able to implement a system effectively. And that's, I think why, you know, why I wanted to reach out to you guys because it felt like there would be more talk about here because you are, you know, actively doing this kind of thing to be able to figure out how other people could implement it across the country or the world for that matter. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. And I, it's it's just a, a, it just feels so, different than anything else I've ever approached to, especially with something with food, because everything I feel like, at least on the surface, people just think of markets, like superstores and stuff like that. And then like my idea that I keep thinking about is this, if you could basically create some sort of localized network for people, whereas like if you used your farm, for instance, and then you had a couple other farmers within a certain radius, and then you met customers, and then you just have a like, you know, a biweekly or whatever that you have for storage, schedule to be able to connect with the consumer and deliver food or they they go to a pickup location whatever that would be that could create this new food sourcing network basically within areas and you have like these little tiny pockets all over the united states to that pick up the slack in these areas and obviously it that's just a super rough idea of it but that's just what i keep thinking about when i hear this idea basically yeah well i mean we you know we service uh Oh, I don't know, three, four thousand families mm-hmm. on the ur- in the urban sector, and we call them uh, metropolitan buying clubs. Uh, okay. They're just uh, they're just you know urban. They're basically just urban drop points. Yeah. There's no membership, and uh, you you shop on a on our um, on our shopping cart, mm-hmm. and uh, we service them every month. Every month we go and uh, uh, people meet us at a drop point, yep. and they can get anything from one dozen eggs to a whole cow and you know there's no there's no subscription service it's just you know whatever you want and um and so you know we we do that we collaborate with other uh farmers in the area mm-hmm. we you know we take um you know a, a biological apple juice from a, an orchard nearby we take oh, that's cool. uh, kombucha 
uh, lacto-fermented sauerkraut kimchi. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're collaborating with some other artis- artisans in the area that are turning our, you know, chicken necks and backs into broth. Oh, we wow. We take uh, hearty, hearty beef stew and soups. Um, so, that, you know, yes, uh, the, the, the distribution aspect is absolutely being done, and the, and the Internet is what's getting us there. Yeah. And so, so the, the, the industrial, look, a supermarket is a food factory. So what's, what, just think about this. Here's a good one for your, for your feeding curiosity. <laughs> think about this. What would the uberization of food look like? Mm-hmm. And what the uberization of food looks like is exactly what you just said. It's a it's a real time short chain of custody um, that's where you're you're shopping uh, electronically, mm-hmm. and the food is being vetted by the feedback loop, by ratings, and by this is good, this is bad, whatever. Mm-hmm. And so you actually have real time. Um, auditing and uh, vetting in the system that completely circumvents the entire industrial factory food system of which the supermarket is the pinnacle. Yes. And that's, that's exactly like I completely a hundred percent agree. And I just think this idea is, is 110. Like I, it's just something that is so fascinating to me to think about, that and the fact that it, these exist, I don't know if you know of any other farms and other places in the yeah, world or anything yeah, like there, that. There are, yeah, there there are numerous uh, numerous people doing this in in you know in various iterations. Correct. Uh, in fact, late this week, um, two of our two of our staff are going up to Rhode Island to mm-hmm. visit with a couple that's developed a a um, you know a, a local network direct direct networking system. And with um, a handful of farmers up there, and essentially they're uh, they've taken what we've done, taken it one step further, where instead of people um, meeting them at a like somebody's house at a at a drop point, mm-hmm. instead they're going to office buildings, fitness centers, and they're using commercial space where people already are Mm -hmm. and so you just go and you drop off the orders and everybody picks it up on their way home from work or their way out of the gym and it's just a natural so you're using you're using natural uh, human collection points yeah to drop off the internet ordered food products so you completely take the warehousing, the in you know you take all that stuff out of the system. Now suddenly, the farmer can get more because it's not all bled off in distribution, mm-hmm. and there's still enough left for the distributor, and the buyer gets a break because you don't have all those overheads in the system. Yeah. Uh, listen, electronic electronic aggregation is the phrase of the future for the retail interface. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you're watching the news, you know that the big box store, the bricks and mortar, the bricks and mortar interface 
is gradually moving the way of the dinosaur mm-hmm. because it's too it's too expensive to maintain. Yes. And so what you have is fulfillment centers. Fulfillment centers are are in, are are the warehouse for the cyberspace um, uh, interspace interface. So the interface the interface is is cyberspace. The inventory is in a fulfillment center. But the beauty of a fulfillment center is it doesn't have to have handicapped parking. It doesn't have to have, yep. uh, uh, and, and I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to be disrespectful to handicap. I'm just saying, you know, when you, it doesn't have to have all the, the, the public liability insurance, mm-hmm. a certain amount of lumens, uh, bathrooms, you know, all the things that you have to maintain yeah, the, the in order to, costs. to interface directly with the public from a, a liability and a, and a comfort, uh, place. Mm-hmm. That can now be, that is now completely done and all that overhead and expense is gone and you simply have a, a, a fulfillment center yeah. and you have a cyberspace interface and that's, and that's the system. That's awesome. And I, I, I think that that is going to be, that's, that's what I see as the Uberization uh, of that. Now that where that fulfillment center may be actually a, on a farm, it may be very, very small, mm-hmm. you know. It, but but the beauty of this is that that since your overheads are so low, you can be small. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons that the retail food space has had to get bigger and the supermarkets have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger is because the overheads are so huge that you have to you have to get. It, it's the same thing as a Tyson chicken farm, a, a, a pig farm, or a, a beef feed lot, whatever it is, a, a tomato farm. When you go. When your overheads are so high and your margins become extremely small, you have to really uh, uh, get huge size and scale mm-hmm. because your margins are so low. But if you can if you can cut those overheads and increase the margins a little bit, suddenly your profitability isn't quite so dependent on scale. So mm-hmm. so you 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 actually democratize the ability for profitability based on scale. Yeah. And that ultimately becomes a system that is easy to enter, easy to exit, and offers the greatest entrepreneurial opportunity mm-hmm. for innovation in the marketplace. I love it. And we just hit just over an hour and I really want to be respectful of your time. And we could probably go on for many more hours <laughs> with all of this stuff, but I really want to just be respectful. So the the only thing I want to end on because the age group that I am and, and, and stuff like that is just anything you could part with to any person who's either entering the quote unquote real world or is in college age and is like looking to find, you know, a direction to go or anything like books related to either this topic or anything that you found impactful for your life. Well, I, I, I would say, um, uh, you know, a couple things. One is, you know, uh, be mindful of debt. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, stay, stay out of debt, uh, live frugally. Um, and, and yes, you can buy oatmeal in 20 pound bags <laughs> for pennies. And, um, so you, you can, you can live very frugally, save your pennies because, because capital, if you can build capital, you now have wiggle room in your life. You, you can make, you can make decisions, but if you are stuck with debt and you have no capital, you don't have wiggle room to be innovative. You don't have mm-hmm. wiggle room to try something new, something different. You're in the grind, you're on the treadmill and you, you know, and you're just stuck. 
So, so um, you know, be wary of debt, live frugally, and then the final thing is uh, don't quit. You know, mm-hmm. when you get in, the, don't jump around. Remember, you can't Google experience. All you can do is go through experience. And so as much as you'd like to shortcut experience, it ain't going to happen. And so a lot of times what separates successes from failures is not the number of failures, it's did you get up when you fell down and did you keep getting up? I tell people, look, you know, I'm not smarter or better than anybody else. We were just too stubborn to quit. We've watched thousands of farmers like us start mm-hmm. and they fail and they just, oh, it's too hard. You know, I'm just going to quit. And remember, it's darkest right before the dawn. And, and usually the breakthrough is right at the point of despair. Mm-hmm. And so it's when you're in despair that you actually be, get creative and innovative. So, so just, you know, just stay with it. My dad used to say, if at first you don't suck a seed, just suck and suck and suck until you do suck a seed. (laughs) And uh, there's a lot of value to that. Yeah, I love it. And thanks again for your time and for, you know, bouncing these ideas off of me and stuff like that. And I'm just a a Chicago suburban boy. So this is really eye-opening for me and hopefully for much of the world. (laughs) Great. It's been great, great visiting with you. Yeah, hopefully one day if you're in the Chicago area or if I find myself in Virginia, you said you were in, right? Absolutely. Come come see us. I would come love see to. Us. I would really love yes, to. Yes, sir. I want to take a quick second and talk about how you can support our show. I believe this is the most honest way that I can connect with you, the listener, and put it in front of everyone. You can support our show for as little as 99 cents a month. We release four podcasts a month, all at an average length of about an hour. That means you are supporting us at just 25 cents an hour. That's that's cheaper than the dollar menu. I think it's safe to say that we provide more value than that. And if you learn anything from our content, please consider becoming a supporter today with the link in the description of any episode or on the website at feedingcuriosity.net. And with that, thanks for listening and please enjoy the show. You just listened to an episode of Feeding Curiosity. Thank you all for listening and tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a like, subscribe, go check out the website over at feedingcuriosity.net and all the other things that we're doing there. And once again, thank you all for tuning in and we will see you in the next episode.